Thank you, Jenny. Thank you for your invitation. Thank you. Nice to see people here. I recognize some faces. I can even remember a few names to go with some faces, and some of you I don't know at all. But it's lovely to be here. And uh, I, didn't, I don't know if Nigel told me he was inviting me to his birthday celebration morning, but it's lovely to be here. Happy birthday, Nigel. So how do you define yourself? If you had to have one word, if I gave you one word to define yourself, what would it be? This isn't the point where you go, I know how I define them. But how, do you, how would you define yourself? You've got one word to define yourself and you've got half a minute to think of it. You have to start thinking now, not looking at me, going, when's he going to tell me? Now, think, one word to define yourself. And tell the person next to you and see if they agree with you. Hey, it's hard, isn't it? One word. One word's not enough. One word's not enough to define the complexity of who you are, everything you've ever done, and all of that. But it's really unfair, isn't it, that we do it to Thomas? Which Thomas, we say in the Bible? And you say, Doubting Thomas. Is that all we know about Thomas? It's a bit unfair. None of us is one word. Yet Thomas gets put down with this one word that kind of comes out of the passage we read today, although in the version that uh, um, Jenny read, I'm not even sure it used the word doubting. If it did, I missed it. But um, So it's a bit unjustifiable, I think, to give Thomas one word. So we're going to um, have a look a bit at Thomas today. I gather this is your Easter season, and you've done looked at the road of, uh, to Emmaus last week, and presumably you looked at the resurrection a couple of weeks ago. We've at Catford, we've we're working our way through um, just the end, these end bits of John as well, and we looked at Mary Magdalene at uh, at the tomb, and some other people that Jesus met. So we've got Thomas this morning, and in fact. It kind of comes at the end of John's Gospel, doesn't it? This bit that we read. I haven't got any visuals for you to look at this morning on the screen. So I'd encourage you to have your Bible open. We're going to jump around a bit, especially in John's Gospel. So this is... I, encourage, I asked Jenny to read the last couple of verses after it actually talks about Thomas, right to the end of chapter 20. And it kind of feels like it's coming to the end, doesn't it, of John's Gospel. We'll look at that a bit as we go. And actually... John, when he's writing this gospel, he gives Thomas, this doubting Thomas that we all have no time for, the climax of the whole thing. The whole, all of what John's been leading up to, he puts in Thomas's mouth, where Thomas sees Jesus and says, my Lord, or my master in, in the message version, my Lord and my God. That's in some ways where John's been leading in his whole gospel up to these words that he puts in Thomas's mouth. I don't mean he puts them in as in Thomas never said it, but he chose to put in Thomas saying, my Lord and my God, um, as a great declaration of who Jesus was and is. And all we do is remember Thomas, Thomas for doubting. So let's have a big, bit of a look at Thomas. What can we pick up from the evidence about him in the Gospels? There's not much, I have to say and how it comes into this chapter, and we're going to have a quick look and see what John was doing overall, if we've got time. So, we can have a quick look at all the biblical mentions of Thomas, because as I say, there aren't very many. I'm not interested in the non-biblical mentions of Thomas. But in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each one mentions Thomas only once in their list of the 12 disciples. That's all he gets. He's listed. Matthew puts him 7th out of 12. Mark and Luke have him 8th out of 12. 
and then they don't mention him again. So we've done the first three Gospels. We can, of course, assume that Thomas was there when it says that all the disciples that was there when Jesus fed the 5,000 and when the disciples went on a boat and Jesus stilled a storm and all of that. We can assume Thomas was there seeing what Jesus was about, walking and traveling with Jesus, sent out on that mission where they went and did their thing. So Thomas was there, but we don't really find out anything about him as an individual. Luke mentions him once more in his list of disciples at the beginning of Acts. So we come back to John's Gospel. I love John's Gospel. We've spent the first, my wife and I have spent the first few months of this year reading through John. And it's such a great story. It's very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So read John's Gospel. If you don't hear me say anything else, hear that this morning. Read John's Gospel because it's good. But he appears five times in John. Five times. Two of them are in the passage we had this morning. I'm going to make it into two because you'll see why as we go. One of them comes later in chapter 21 in a list of disciples, which leaves us two more, two earlier appearances of Thomas in John's Gospel. Where are they? Two other appearances of John's Gospel. That wasn't a rhetorical question. Where are they? I mean, I've got the answer, but you know the answer. No. In the other Gospels, he is in a list, but John doesn't actually have a list of all 12. No. Well, there's some calling at the beginning, but not Thomas specifically. But I'm sure he did call Thomas. Okay, let's have a look. Chapter 11, John and chapter 11, which is the story of the raising of Lazarus. And uh, if you... Look just a chapter ahead of that in chapter 10, the end of chapter 10. There's big trouble. Jesus and his disciples, they've left Jerusalem and gone across the Jordan because the Judeans in Jerusalem were getting a bit cross with Jesus. They were going to stone him. So they got out of there and they crossed the Jordan and they went away. And then at the beginning of chapter 11, they hear that Lazarus, who's a good friend of Jesus, a brother of Mary and Martha in Bethany, he's dying. He's really, really ill. And there's something strange in chapter 11 about whether they hang about and if they hadn't hung about, would they have got there before Lazarus died? But that's all for another day. But they, they hear this news and a few days later, Jesus says, right, we're going. We're going to go to Bethany and we'll see Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And the disciples say, hang on. Bethany is quite close to Jerusalem. And we've just come from Jerusalem because they were about to stone you. So is it a good idea to go back? And Jesus says, We're going to go. And Thomas says, where are we? Thomas says, go on then, verse 16, what does it say? All right, we'll go so that we can die with you. Let us go also that we may die with him. does sound rather like Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh, I think. Always seeing the best side of everything. But what, can we, what do we see of Thomas's character in that statement? Firstly, I want to suggest there is a huge loyalty to Jesus. He's saying, okay, you say we're going to go, we'll go with you. There's that loyalty, there's that following. He's prepared to go wherever Jesus thinks is best. But secondly, there is a practical realist, let's call it, rather than a doom-monger attitude, but a practical realist in Thomas. He kind of sees what's going to happen. 
He's saying, it's not going to turn out well, I don't think. We were all probably going to die. So he's got that loyalty and he's got that practical eye for how things are actually. He's not going to say, oh, yes, well, I'm sure if Jesus says it's all right, it'll be wonderful. He says, no, no, it's not going to go well. So they go off to Bethany. You probably know the story. Um, in chapter 11, um, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and, and all of that. And then that enrages the Judeans even more that they not only want to kill Jesus now, they also want to kill Lazarus again to put him back back in the tomb. And then a large crowd that had seen Lazarus raised from the dead, they follow Jesus into Jerusalem at Palm Sunday. Have you noticed in John's telling of Palm Sunday there are two crowds? There's one crowd going with Jesus into the city. They've come from Lazarus and there's another crowd come out of the city and there's this huge celebration as they meet. So he's going from Lazarus into the city. That's chapter 12. Chapter 13 opens with Jesus washing the disciples' feet And then Jesus, knowing that his earthly ministry was coming to an end, has this long talk with the disciples that goes through several chapters of John. And it finishes with his prayer for the disciples at the end of chapter 17. But during this, Jesus talks about going away and going to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places, he says. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. It's all good stuff. It's supposed to be encouraging. I'm sure it is. And help them be ready for when he's no longer there in person. But then Thomas comes in with this question. This is Thomas's second appearance. Thomas comes in with the question. Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? And that tees up one of Jesus' most famous sayings, I am the way, the truth, and the life. However, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know the Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. We'll come back to seeing later, so hold on to that. But let's look at Thomas. Once more, I think we see loyalty to Jesus. He addresses Jesus as Lord, as Master. He's not questioning that. He's just got, but he has got, with his practical mind again, brings it down to earth, perhaps literally, how can we know the way? Jesus gives him an answer, perhaps not in the terms he was expecting, no postcode to put in his sat-nav, but as so often, Jesus offers himself as the answer. He says, I am the way. I am the way, follow me. So there's our two main appearances of Thomas before we get to today's passage. I don't think we see a man who doubts his faith in Jesus. We see a man who is loyal, who is willing to go with Jesus wherever that goes, whether that's to death or whether that's to somewhere where he doesn't actually know where it's going. But he is, pre- but he is prepared to ask questions, to raise the thoughts that are in his mind. Perhaps these could be called doubts, but primarily he's, he's faithful and loyal. So let's bring that, what we know about Thomas, to the two incidents in chapter 20, which is what Jenny read at the beginning, beginning of verse 19. I say two incidents because if you divide that text chronologically, it's in two chunks, a week apart. Um, the, the verses uh, 24 to 25, which in most Bibles are kind of tacked on to the following verses, I think actually belong with the preceding verses. So we take 19 to 25, is 
actually in the evening of Resurrection Day itself. And then 26 onwards describes something else a week later. So, in verse 19, as we had as we had read, on the evening of the Resurrection Day, the disciples, or as it turns out, only most of them, were together in a locked house, and Jesus came to them. Peace be with you, he says twice. He showed them himself to them, and he gave them their commission. You think the Great Commission is the end of Matthew. It's also here. He gave them their commission. As the Father has sent me, I send you. And if we've read the whole of the gospel up to this point, which of course John assumes that we have, he didn't read it just to be dipped in and out of, but to be read through, we see he's pulling things together as he gets to the end of his gospel. When Jesus was praying for his disciples in the upper room, he acknowledged that the Father had sent him, and he was sending his disciples. Now he says it again. He promised the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them to receive the Holy Spirit. As God had breathed life into the first creation in Genesis, Jesus is starting the new creation and breathing the Holy Spirit after his resurrection onto his disciples. So it's amazing. Jesus is alive. What he was saying to his disciples is coming together, coming to fulfillment. But as we know, Thomas wasn't there. The others tell him, we have seen the Lord seeing again. We looked at Mary Magdalene, like I said, if you look look back at the first half of chapter 20, it's all about seeing. It's all about seeing. I have seen the Lord. She saw that the the stone was rolled away. They saw the linen, and in the end, she saw Jesus. And the disciples here say, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas, it seems, doesn't react well. Unless I see it for myself, I will not believe. As ever, as we know Thomas now, He's got questions. He's practical. Perhaps he's wanting to be in control and set his own tests for what Jesus has to do to convince him. Do we do that? Do we want to be in control of how we'll believe Jesus? I'm not going to believe unless I see this particular thing. I've heard of miracles happening over there. And unless I see them, I'm not going to believe. Maybe Thomas is doing a bit of that. He wants to be in control. Not doubting, of course, just holding back, wanting to see. So then a week later, on another first day, Thomas is with the others and Jesus appears to them. And again, he says, peace, peace be with you. Jesus turns to Thomas and shows that he's spiritually overheard what he said before. He offers to let Thomas do exactly what he wanted to do to touch him, to put his hand in his side. Does Thomas do that? doesn't actually say whether he does it or not. I rather suspect he doesn't. Because in that moment, Jesus is showing him tremendous grace and is saying, actually, despite you setting the criteria for how you're going to believe me, I will meet you in that way. He offers Thomas the chance to prove to himself that Jesus is alive. But in that moment, Thomas realizes he doesn't need to do that. He doesn't need to actually put his hands where he said he wanted to. All the proof he needs is standing there right in front of him. And he declares that truth, as I say, John's been building up to through his gospel. My Lord and my God, my Master and my God. 
as the message has it. My Lord and my God. He has realized that this man, who the disciples have regularly called Lord or Master through through their life and their walking with Jesus over the last few years, is actually also God. My Lord and my God. It's the place where John puts those things together for the disciples. We've known that. The readers, he's told us that right back at the beginning. John 1. Do you remember John 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word was God. He told us, John told us, the readers, way back. But this is the moment where the disciples realize through the Gospel, John's been showing us how the people who met Jesus realized that for themselves. But notice, too, that as well as that grace extended to Thomas, there's a gentle rebuke in there. You should have believed the others. Then you would have been in the more blessed group. Don't we all want to be in the more blessed group? Even more blessed are those who believed without seeing. You could have been one of those, Thomas. So it's not a simple picture. Jesus does refer here to Thomas's doubts. But there's much more to Thomas than that single characteristic. And thank goodness there's much more to any one of us than a single characteristic. But what does this mean for us now? I've mentioned a couple of times these incidents come towards the end of the gospel. And they reflect back on everything John's been saying. John is such a well-written bit of literature. It all links up. As you might have noticed, chapter 20 seems to come to a nice, well-rounded conclusion. And then there's chapter 21. It feels like John finished with chapter 20, and then maybe at a later time added um, 21, with another nice, well-rounded ending at the end of that chapter. So maybe it was added later. But there's no manuscript copy that only has up to chapter 20, and then some others have chapter 21. So no one really knows. But let's have a quick look at how John was wrapping things up at the end of chapter 20, because that's where we are today. As I say, he uses the incident with Thomas to link to his whole purpose of writing the gospel. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Seeing and not seeing, light and dark, huge themes in in John, the gospel of John. If you've got your Bible, flick back again to John 1 and look through. How many mentions of seeing are there there? I haven't got time to look at them all in detail. But verses 4, 5, 7, 9, 14 to 18, they all mention seeing. In him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. All the way through, John, we see light and dark. Nicodemus came to meet Jesus at night. In his, misunderst- in his lack of understanding, in his questions, he came at night. Judas, when he was going out to betray Jesus, went out into the night. Not that these things didn't actually happen at the night, but John picks those up and uses them as reminders for the reader that it's light and it's dark. The, light, the darkness has not overcome the light. So Jesus says here in chapter 20, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. And then John writes, these things are written so that you, he kind of turns to us, the reader, 
These things are written so that you, dear reader, may come to believe that the Messiah, the Son of God, is none other than Jesus. And that through believing, you, that's us again, may have life in his name. This is at least the second mention that we've had in John's Gospel. In that big prayer in the upper room, Jesus prayed for us. Remember, he prayed for the disciples and he would pray that all who believe in the, through their words which come down the ages to us. And here, John mentions that the whole point of writing his gospel is not just a memoir of his mate Jesus, it's a purpose so that we will come to believe and that through believing we have life in his name. We have seen, John wrote back in chapter 1, referring to himself and the disciples, we have seen, and now he's written, so that you may believe. He says there are lots of other things he could have said, many other signs that, have, that Jesus did to show who he was. But John has carefully chosen what he's put in for that purpose of showing that Jesus is God and the word of God and that we may believe when we read and we could say, like Thomas, my Lord and my God. Jesus said he was sending his disciples in the same way as the Father had sent him to change the world, to bring the people to know God. Again, echoing chapter 1. This was, his, this was his mission, and that is our mission. Writing his gospel was one thing that John did as part of his own mission. To tell, part of telling. So that you may believe. So there's an invitation here for all of us. This is John telling us so that we may believe. So we have that invitation that needs a response Jesus said to Thomas earlier, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The whole of John's gospel is an invitation to follow that way. But it's more than a once-for-all invitation. You're either yes or no. It's John also says, and that through believing, ongoing, through believing, you may have life in his name. Believing in Jesus' ongoing process of discipleship. How are we growing into that life that Jesus promises. John suggests here that his gospel, and I suspect the rest of the Bible, is essential for discipleship. That's what he wrote his gospel for. How's your Bible reading? That is a rhetorical question. Other than when you jump into a passage for Sunday morning, how's your Bible reading? When I was studying, uh, one of the the hardest things I had to learn was this thing called academic reading, which any of you who have ever done academic reading know means actually not reading it at all. But skipping through and picking out quotes that you can shove into your essay and then getting to the end and finding the conclusion. I really struggled with that. because I always thought, well, if this guy's gone to this trouble of writing all these words, the least I can do is to read them all. And I think that's what we need to do with, talk with John and the rest of the Bible. He's taken the trouble. He's put it together in a particular way that least we can do is read them. What helps you? Get together with other people, following blogs on the web, although it's easy to read writing about the Bible instead of the Bible, isn't it? Get an audio version of the Bible on your phone and listen to it as you uh, do other things. So how's your discipleship? And I particularly mention getting into the word this morning. But there's lots of other aspects of discipleship, aren't there? So we're not just invited in, but we're invited to grow in our discipleship. 
And as I say, Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit over his disciples. Spirit is present in the words of the Bible when we pray in our action and in our mission. So what is our mission? As we've said, the whole point of John's gospel is that he was writing it was his mission so that his readers would come to believe. And Jesus sends us all. Where are we showing the love of God to people who don't believe in our weeks? According to later stories, Thomas, poor old doubting Thomas, who's not doubting at all, we must stop calling him that. He ended up in India, it is said. He went on a mission. He, um, he doesn't get mentioned in the book of Acts. Acts tells us about some of them, where they went. But it is said that Thomas went to India, and when Western missionaries arrived there, they found an already existing church which traced its history back to the Apostle Thomas. Some achievement for a doubting, doubting Thomas, isn't it? So Thomas heard and responded to that invitation from Jesus. He followed and grew in his knowledge, and he went on that mission. Where are we in doing those things? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you invite us in. You invite us into your family. Whether we've heard and responded to that invitation before or not, you extend your hand. You extend your smile to welcome us in. Help us to respond to your invitation to join and be part of your family. And help us to grow in discipleship, whatever we need to do whether that's on our own or whether it's with other people, whether it's spending time in prayer, spending time in the Word, spending time getting away, spending time in the midst of things. Help us to grow in our walk with you. Help us to be growing disciples of you. And we pray, Lord, give us a mission. Give us something to do. Thank you so much for all the people going um, on, on the Summer 18 mission in the summer. Thank you. That's something specific that they can do. But Lord, give us all that mission and give us the courage to say yes. To say with Thomas, let's go with Jesus, even though it could end badly. Although with Jesus, quite often it doesn't end badly. But Lord, help us to go with you where you call us to go. Our Lord and our God. Amen.